Talking Tesla. Talking Tesla. Tesla. I'm not sure if like my foot should be on the brake or the accelerator. They put rings on Elon. It must be some sort of geometrical algorithm. Are you ready now? Oh, I'm sure this math. Tom. <laughs> Robert. Yeah. Well, all right, fellas. Well, let's go. How am I expected to drive a car without autopilot? So here's the deal. You know, I'm not a good parker, Tom. Yeah. I'll be the first to admit it. Yeah. Just think that this is a car company that is run by super Auto geeks. All the other cars are going to be stupid cars compared to this car. Tesla. You don't even have Tesla. Yep. I remember that. You've got a Model X. seen the future, and it is light pole charging. No, I wouldn't call it a screw-up. Do you like your Model X? God, it's beautiful. Talking Tesla 50. Exciting, except I'm sitting all by myself in my dining room while Mel and Tom are down in South America, Chile, drinking wine and not being here. Where the hell are you guys? What are you doing? We want to hear from you. That's right, Robert. Uh, we were in South America, and it was touch and go. It was right on the edge. It was right up there as to whether you would even get a talking Tesla this week because a couple of things happened, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. turns out that in Chile, in the hotels, the bandwidth situation is uh, poor, bad, not good, not good at all. So uh, we couldn't really do what we were planning on doing, which was record something and then send it off for editing and get it out there. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. And then my flight got cancelled and it was all very exciting. But hey, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's Tuesday afternoon. I literally just got off the plane from LAX and now I'm here with you. And I'm going to slap this thing together and it's going to be what you would call average. Let me just slip in here. Happy birthday to Tevin Grant, talking Tesla listener. 40 years old today. How's that, kids? How's that? And let us begin, actually, with my trip back from LAX to my house. So I live about uh, 20-ish miles, I think 24 miles, from LAX. I've never taken Uber from LAX. I take Uber to LAX all the time. But as in a lot of countries, there's a bit of a wing match between the taxis and uh, the airports and Uber. And so Uber is finally able to take you away from the airport, but you have to go to these designated areas. And normally when you come into baggage claim, it's at the bottom floor of LAX and you go out and get a taxi and off you go. But they've made this situation so that you have to go to the top floor of LAX. So you have to find an escalator that goes up much harder than it seems. And then you have to go to a designated pickup area and then you call your Uber and they pick you up from the designated area. So they make it, I think, a little bit harder than getting a taxi from LAX. But that's not the point. Here's the point. The cost of the Uber that I went to get to go to my house, about 24-ish miles away, in the middle of the day, around 11, 12 o'clock, $34.50. But there were none available. I kept waiting and waiting and waiting. It says none available, none available, none available. So I gave up and I went downstairs and I just got a cab. The cab ride with tip, $90. Uber, less than half price, which raises a number of questions here. First of all, Are Uber drivers making any money? Are they making a sufficient income? Made me concerned and worried. And then it made me think about the fact that once you get rid of the driver, and the driver being 80% or more of the cost, that Uber drive from LAX is going to be hopelessly inexpensive. That's the method of transport that I'm going to take. I saw a whole bunch of young kids, sort of college-age kids, that were waiting for Ubers. And I thought the reason they are specifically waiting for Uber is because it's so much cheaper than a cab. And the only reason I went downstairs and got a cab is because I could afford to get a cab, even though I was kind of ticked off about how much more expensive it was. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, when the self-driving cars of the future come and Uber buys them all from Tesla and that cost comes down as much as Eric Bergeron has suggested, holy smoky, wokey dokey, 
It's going to be cheap as chips. Which got me thinking about a number of things and suggested a number of rants. But one of the things that made me think is, what's going to happen to all the taxi drivers and the Uber drivers that work now? They're going to need to look for new employment. But then I was thinking to myself, if right now you're an Uber driver and you're making the equivalent of, I don't know, is it 10 bucks an hour that these guys are making? If that's your plan for a long-term high-paying job, that's not a good plan. It's not a good plan now, and it's not a good plan in a few years when all of those jobs, theoretically, and I think in all likelihood, will disappear. It is a job right now to supplement your income. You've got another job, but you need some more money. You're a, you're a student. But long-term, uh, Uber is not going to think twice about saying, bye-bye, drivers. Thank you very much for getting us up and going. We are now going fully autonomous because we can drop the price and further crush the market. What's going to happen to all those taxi and Uber drivers? That is a big question. I don't think there will be enough solar power installation jobs to help them out. And kind of on this point, Uber is trialing some electric cars. Uber trials a fleet of all-electric Nissan Leafs in London. Nissan uh, supplied 20 Leafs to Uber. This is the new Gen 3 Leafs to be part of an extensive EV trial. Why? Well, this is because in 2020, London will impose an ultra-low emissions zone. So that's going to be a section of the central London city center where you can't drive a petrol car. And it's because of smog and pollution. I think that's great. I think that's really forward thinking. They also have a terrible congestion problem. So unless you pay for a special permit, you can't even drive your car in the most central part of London. Are using these Leafs, they have a 30 kilowatt hour battery, which gives them up to 155 mile range. And Uber knows already from all of its extensive data gathering that their average London commute is 7.9 miles. So this gives them sort of an optimal 19 fares between charges, which kind of led me to the question, where where are they going to charge? I don't know London charging infrastructure very well. I imagine there's not too many places. There's not a lot of open space within London to set up charging stations. But it turns out that there are no Chatamo chargers in central London. So I have no idea what the hell Uber's going to do. I did find five Chatamo chargers. That's the Nissan fast charger. They were east of the city, clustered around the London city airport. So I wonder, will Uber now work with the local government or some other entity to stuff a bunch of fast chargers into London, which would inevitably improve EV use and access for you know, the general population. This isn't the biggest EV sort of taxi or ride-sharing program. There's actually over 800 Leafs in use by taxi operators across Europe. And Nissan supplied a, one taxi service, La Ciudad del Taxi, in Madrid with 110 Nissan Leafs. That's pretty awesome. There's also a, um, in Amsterdam, at the airport there, there's a taxi service that supplies Tesla Model S. In fact, they have 167 Tesla Model S taxis in Amsterdam. That's pretty awesome. As an aside, how many supercharger plugs are there in London? And it turns out there's 20 plugs. And this is scattered around one, two, three, four different stations. In fact, there's one in East London area. There's only two supercharger plugs at a supercharger station. That's got to be the smallest I've ever heard of. Of course, they don't get any smaller than two because a supercharger provides two plugs. 
Nevertheless, they have a two-plug site, a four-plug site, a six-plug site, an eight-plug site, and they're going to add another site in downtown London with all of two plugs. And, um, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for True Confessions. Yes, True Confessions by Robert Rosenblum. I need to come clean this week. Yes, Robert actually has studied science. Last week, I blurted out the number 245. I don't know if you remember, but I'm so embarrassed. It's not the highest number of atomic elements that are there. I was very mistaken, and I feel bad. But just to set things straight, un un septium, atomic number 118, is at the top end of the periodic table. And just so you know, it's a super heavy artificial element. Maybe they've created three or possibly four of these atoms and... That's how you get on the periodic table, which is a pretty good win. They're trying to rename it after one of the Russian scientists who helped to invent it, whose name is Ogunesun. Anyway, they found it in 2002 in Russia. It is, of course, very short-lived. It lasts 0.89 milliseconds, radioactive, and it's got some interesting uh, qualities. It's a noble gas, or at least it's in the noble gas column, if you remember what that is. But for some reason, it's actually a solid. It's beyond me. I don't think it should count, personally. Just another rant. I think we might call this a series of rants. I don't think that should count, although it's a good deal. Nice, good work, putting atoms together like that, that only last milliseconds. I think that the periodic table should only include those things that are naturally occurring. That's just me. I just think that if you make something in the lab that only lasts for a few milliseconds, that that's not good enough to get in the periodic table. But it's just a theory eh, with no sort of logic to back it up. Moving on to the news. SpaceX. Oh, what a frowny face. I got first an alert from the Washington Post and then two minutes later from the LA Times on my Apple Watch while I was at work. And damn, the thing just blew up like a big, big stick of dynamite. Luckily, no one was hurt. It was uh, slated to take a Facebook-funded satellite up over Africa to provide high-speed internet to that continent. So really a big loss for a lot of the people there. It was an explosion that took place in the same region of the rocket. It's in the second stage. It actually happened while they were loading propellant for a test firing. There's no explanation as of yet. It's the same as the 2015 RUD, R-U-D. Of course, you remember that means rapid unexplained disassembly. The explosion may have damaged the launch site. It was pretty impressive, and you can watch on the Washington Post. They've cut down this, you know, very long video to just the the flash feature. Questions are floating through the press. Were SpaceX moving too fast? Will NASA reconsider using SpaceX for crew transport? Oh, I just feel really ill after thinking about it. Ah, but Robert, we don't want to bury the lead, as it were, because it turns out, ladies and gentlemen, although the implications of this explosion are sort of reverberating now, and exactly as Robert said, what does this mean for SpaceX? Are they not as uh, safe as uh, the Russians, or do NASA need to do this themselves? Are they moving too quickly? I mean, there are lots of implications, and you know this is going to happen every time there's an explosion like this. You don't really want to put people on the top of a rocket that blows up every every now and then. You want to put people on the top of a rocket that never blows up. So lots of implications. But far more important than all of this, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, is the fact that the internet spotted a UFO just before the SpaceX explosion. And if you look at the footage from a number of different sources, there is indeed a UFO in that it is unidentified and it is certainly flying. And the YouTube that comes from this U.S. launch report, which captures high-resolution video from a very safe distance away, clearly shows just before the explosion a UFO that is right near 
the SpaceX rocket. And the extremists online have suggested that this was either a drone attack from the Chinese or an alien attack. And so you've got to watch the video. It sure looks like it until you realize that if you pan out and if you look at this video for longer, it turns out there are at least 50 other UFOs in the vicinity that are clearly just birds. And so, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, although it was very exciting to think that the aliens are coming to stop SpaceX, it was probably just a flock of seagulls. Moving on, Tesla's uh, new supercharger credit program to unbundle the cost of superchargers. So, of course, there's two articles in Electric. Mel can do it so much better. A savvy Tesla aficionado noticed when he was on his My Tesla webpage that there was a spot where you could delineate supercharger credits and you could buy supercharger credits by the kilowatt hour. And it had a place where you could enter your credit card. And he thought that was interesting. And another, uh, maybe the same guy or somebody else went into the HTML code for that page. And sure enough, they saw that there was this method by which you could charge supercharger credits on your credit card. The argument is that unbundling the cost of the supercharger from the sale of a Model S or a Model X and eventually a Model 3 would bring down the entry price of the car. How do we know that? Well, early on, if you bought a Model S 40, they they did make a 40 kilowatt hour battery, or the early Model S 60s, they did not come with supercharger access included, but you could add it. And in fact, it's still an active feature. So if you own an early Model S, either a 40 kilowatt or a 60 kilowatt car, you can add supercharger access for $2,500. That's lifetime supercharger access. If they actually use that number for, let's say, the Model 3 for lifetime supercharger access, you know, that sounds maybe fair, although if you stop and you do a little math, bingo cards out. So I looked at it and I see that my Model S came with a 260-mile range and it had a 85-kilowatt-hour battery. So they're estimating you'll get about... Um, you'll spend about 320 watts or 0.32 kilowatts per mile of driving. So uh, my electricity here in Southern California costs 14 cents a kilowatt. And that's if I charge in off hours, so excluding noon to 6 p.m. So if I'm charging at 14 cents a kilowatt and I'm driving at a rate of 0.32 kilowatts per mile, that gives me a charge of 4.48 cents per mile. Comparing that to an internal combustion car, the nationwide average price of gas is $2.20. If you think, well, another car the same size and quality of a Model S should get about 25 miles to the gallon, that would mean about twice the price, about 8.8 cents per mile. But that's an aside. So let's go back to the point at hand, 4.48 cents per mile with a $2,500 allowance bump up in the price to access the supercharger for life. If we divide that cost per mile into the $2,500, then I'm paying in advance for 55,804 miles. Holy macaroni. I'm paying a lot of money to get access to the supercharger. Would I ever charge on a supercharger to the degree of driving 50 over 55,000 miles? No way. So maybe it's a good idea they decouple it and let us pay by the charge or pay by the mile. What are they going to charge us? If it's 14 cents, what are they going to bump it up? 20%? Charge us 17 cents? 
I don't know. It kind of depends on what they're going to charge us to use the supercharger, but it may not be a bad deal to uncouple that. Actually, in many ways, this is not new news because you know LA Times and other people seen it, and other people have said you know at the shareholders uh, meeting earlier in the year that Elon was actually talking about this. He was saying that uh, decoupling uh, lifetime supercharging is probably a good idea because they're trying to keep their margin around 20%, 25%, and adding stuff like free supercharging for life really eats into that, and this has got to be a profitable car. And so you've got to really think about which options need to be paid for worse versus which options shouldn't be paid for. And there's a lot of tension there because you want this car to be an enormous success. And one of the ways you do that, just as with the Model S and Model X, is the psychological success of saying you can drive long distance forever on the supercharger network. So it's a little bit more difficult, though, because if you ask somebody who's going to buy a $100,000 car, do you want an extra $2,500 for the supercharger network free for life? You go, sure. But somebody who's scraping together the pennies to get this really nice car for $35,000, and suddenly it's $2,500 more, that's a bit more difficult. So I think decoupling is good for lots of the options. It goes back to that idea that I think all of these options will be in there. That would make sense from a manufacturing point of view because it's not really going to cost them too much money to put in that charger. Probably it's the cost of the electricity over time that will be at least as much as the charger. So you just put it all in there and you say, here's the base price. It's really cheap. Now, if later on you decide boy, I really am doing a lot of long-distance travel and I really don't want to pay as I go. I just want to be able to pay up front and be done with it. And now I've got an extra couple of grand. Can you flip the switch and turn that on with software? That, I believe, is the way to do it. And that is the way I believe they will do it. I think it makes the manufacturing process a lot easier. If you just fill the car up with most of the options, maybe you can't do it all of the options, but most of the options, and then software, upgrade it later on, is brilliant Because as people save more money and they love their car and they want to make their car even better, okay, flip on the bigger battery, boom, done. Flip on the supercharging for life, boom, done. That is a really different way of selling a car initially cheaply and then adding stuff later on without even having to go to the store. So I'm in uh, downtown Santiago and uh, just walking past a group of renter bikes, which is kind of cool. You're going... Put your credit card in, rent the bike, bring it back somewhere else, and you get charged. But I've been walking around for about an hour or two, and I have not seen one electric car. And this raises to me the, the enormity of what Elon and others have to do. This is a big city. This is 5 million people. This is a country with over 20 million people, with a lot of cars, a lot of buses. So when we're talking about electrifying the U.S. or electrifying Australia, or this is going to happen throughout the world. This is a South American country that does not have the money to replace its cars with even a $30,000 car. Probably not even with a $20,000 car. For this to work here, we're talking uh, you need a $10,000 electric car that can get it done for these people, plus the infrastructure and when you walk around, when you go to the gas stations, when you look for car chargers, there's very few. So this problem, this thing that we have to fix, is enormous. And it's only until you really get out of the states and look around at the rest of the world, and this is just one tiny part of it, you realize how big a problem this is to solve. And how big a, an idea person you have to be to get this done. We need 
South American gigafactories, North American, Australasian, Asian, and we have to get that price down. And that's a real big question to me. Can we, can we get this done? Let's do a few letters here, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and I don't have my boys here to uh, help me pronounce things, so this is going to be really very interesting. Here, Matt Atkinson. Look, Matt Atkinson said this, electric cars used to be mocked as milk floaters here, which is those electric flatbed vans that used to deliver milk in the middle of the night so they wouldn't wake you up, but no more, because now, as Matt notices, Tesla is on front of a whole bunch of car mags, and those car mags are saying, this is a real car, and it's real fast. John, and oh, this is going to be so exciting, Coctosin. John Coctosin, who says it's Scotch-Romanian. He says this, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, love the show. You guys have a great rapport. Love it when you go on a deep dive. But by the way, you mentioned two Business Insider articles this week, but you should know that Business Insider is basically a click house with nothing but salacious titles. And second, you should know that Matt DeBoard, the lead auto writer, is currently being pursued as an escaped mental patient. Is that true? <laughs> is he really? So he gives a couple of titles that are, you know, clickbait titles. So it's time for Tesla to stop improving its most successful car. The whole point of Tesla is that it over always promises and undelivers. Tesla has big plans to build Model 3 that nobody wants. Yeah, so I get the point here. And then he said, get this. Tesla loaned him a P90D Ludicrous a 270-mile car, supercar, and he took the family on a selfie-filled road trip, never commented once about the uh, P90DL performance, and then proceeded to run it dead flat in 117 miles, stranding himself. A.K.A., according to John, he's a moron. We note that, and we might just stay away from Business Insider if we can corroborate the evidence that it is a clickbait piece of loser site. Tevin Grant, who again, by the way, turned 40, Congratulations. I never thought you'd make it, Tevin. He says lots of things, but uh, he says one of the things that people are really worried about in the world today is the government tracking them. But he says, you know, it's actually private companies that we freely give our information to that know our every move. And in fact, he suggested if you go into your Google account and go to Google Maps and click on the menu and then on your timeline, you can look in awe at how well Google has followed you everywhere through pictures and through mapping if you have that stuff turned on i've done it it's actually frightening tim james who's an australian who listened to the show between sydney and canberra had a whole thing about 100 kilowatt batteries and what about the upgrade with the 90 kilowatt battery but tim i didn't understand so you're gonna have to send me another email kip spanbauer said, you know what, there's a lot of talk about these battery replacements and doing all this stuff, and, uh, you know, rapid charging is the key, and I'm with you. Rapid charging is the key, and they're doing it for cell phones, and he provides a link. But if we can get the charging of a Tesla down to five minutes, not sure how they can do it using physics and heat distribution, but if they can get it down to five minutes, the supercharger issue becomes a non-existent issue. It's not five minutes right now. To do a sort of an 8% charge is like 45 minutes, so they're going to have to have a nine-fold improvement in charging time. Not anytime soon, I suspect, even though they said they theoretically can. David Sell here has an interesting thing. He's asking me about the Oxenard Supercharger Station, which is about 30 miles from here. And he lives nearby there. And he's asking me, like, on an average day, in the middle of the day, how many Teslas are there? And the answer is one or two, and it's like a 10 or 12 lot um, supercharger. So most of the time it's empty, but on busy times, on weekends after events, it's often full. But he says this, and I find this the most interesting part, that he's going to get a Model 3 
but he does not want to pay $2,000 up front for the privilege of supercharging because he's going to get an 80-amp charger at home. So that is an N-of-one study about how many people are going to buy this uh, upgrade to their Model 3. Oh, I'm going to get this wrong too. Kapostolik. Kapostolik says, stop yelling electric. Sorry, that's not going to happen, but I will turn down the volume when I do. James Booth links us to an article about Volkswagen supercharging in 15 minutes or fast charging in 15 minutes. And there's a couple of people are saying that this is all very interesting because Tesla in, you know, 20 minutes can give you 100 miles charge and they're going to do, you know, 300 miles charge in 15 minutes. We'll see about that. We'll see if they can actually pull it off. Now, at this point, a lot of you are worried about where's Tom because Tom and Mel went to Chile, but apparently only Mel came back. Well, it turns out that Tom has a real job, and when he got back, he had to get straight back into it, whereas I could sit around and smoke cigarettes while, of course, playing polo and burning fossil fuels. Robert needs to tell us something else that he's done wrong. It's so sad. Oh, yeah. And then uh, Robert comes clean part due. Yes, last week we talked about the inevitable or the upcoming trip to Chile with Mel and Tom, and I thought that uh, really... Uh, how would you say, talking Tesla in Spanish? And and again, I have egg on face. So I think that the uh, appropriate translation would be hablamos Tesla. But uh, really thinking about our show and all that we gab on about, it really should be more like hablamos Tesla con tres idiotas. You can probably figure out what that means. Or maybe hablamos Tesla con tres imbeciles. You probably get that one too. Or how about hablamos Tesla Con tres bufones. Well, that's it for me. Have a great week and uh, enjoy the rest of the show. It's probably at this point you've been thinking, you know, Tom and Mel were in Chile together. Only Mel came back. Mel probably ate Tom. It's not true. Not true at all. Here's Tom interviewing uh, Katie Cooper. Katie works in the office and the studio with Tom and has a really interesting story that I think a lot of people who are just getting into EVs will really appreciate. She's thought about different EVs. She drives an EV, not a Tesla owner yet, but I think really helpful for those people that are trying to work out before the Model 3 comes along, what to get. And I think many of you that know the program well will also note that basically Tom is trying to work out what car he should get by asking Katie what car she's going to get next. So Katie, you have a Chevy Volt. What year is your Chevy Volt? Uh, my Chevy Volt is a 2014, Tom. Was that the first year of the Chevy Volt? No. No. And you you leased the Chevy Volt? You own the Chevy Volt? I leased the Chevy Volt for 36 months. 36 months. So you still have about 12 months left on your lease? Correct. So you've been driving that car for two years. Yep. How many times in that two years... Have you put gas in that car, Katie Cooper, around Oh, Tom. Hmm. In two years, I would say maybe 10 to 12 times. 10 to 12 fill-ups? Yeah. And how many gallons does that car take? Seven gallons. So you may have put 80 gallons. Let's call it 90 gallons. You know what? Let, what the hell? Let's call it 100 gallons over two years. Sure. It's probably, many- probably on the high end, I would say. But All right. Well, we'll call it 80 then. All right. Let's call it 80. And how many miles do you currently have on this car? Uh, About 26,000. So 80 miles, 80 gallons, 26,000. Let me do some quick math. So not accounting for the electricity that you used, which we're not because we're being silly. Right. 325 miles driven per gallon of gas used. That's pretty good. Yeah. Obviously, you plug it in every day. I do. 
when you got the car and you plugged it into full charge, how many miles of range did you get out of that? And I would say probably 38 to 42 miles. It depends. Okay. And how many now? Uh, currently 40. You haven't had any real battery degradation in the two years. Oh, no. Not at all. So you feel like your range is fine. Yeah. And so you have a car and it has a range extender, which you I know very much that you try to not use. And from this 80 gallons in two years thing... You're doing a pretty good job of it. Right. So would you now consider buying a pure electric car that had, and and if so, how much range would you have to have knowing what you now know to be comfortable? I certainly would be comfortable with an all-electric vehicle, and I never thought I would say that. Ever. Even Mel Herbert would never think I would say that. Because I, like he did, at the start, had range anxiety. Even with the gas backup. I was like, oh, I think I'll be fine. But it's good to know that I have gas backup. But now, I could probably go for an all-EV car at 80 miles. Like, 80 miles. Would 80 be, miles range. Yeah. I so, would be comfortable with that. So you're not necessarily clamoring for the 200-mile Model 3 with the supercharging. You're not necessarily wanting the Chevy Bolt, although you've had a Chevy yes. electric vehicle. Yes. A new Chevy electric vehicle is coming out. I know. Right? I'm I'm sort of holding out on that. I would like to take a look at it in person, test drive it. I've test drove the BMW i3. I really liked it. It was pretty expensive when it first came out. Now the prices have dropped a lot. So that is certainly something I would consider. And I also like that it does have the gas backup for longer drives. But uh, I definitely would be interested in the Chevy Bolt. I do like the Tesla 3, but the wait list is just too long. It seems discouraging to hold out for that. If you had to buy a car today, I would go the for, the, for the i3. I you think. would. I think so. Is it because it's a cute little BMW girl car? <sighs> Sorry, Ben. I don't like the new look of the Volt. Right, okay. I feel like it looks like a Honda Civic. But to be fair, I haven't test driven it. So I haven't seen the inside, really. I do like that there's a fifth seat in the back. That's sort of appealing. I don't think the i3 has a fifth seatbelt in the back. There's been a handful of times where I wished I did have an extra seatbelt in the back seat. Your Kia Souls, a used EV, um, mm. a Leaf. No, no dice on a Leaf. I feel like a Leaf is not for me. Okay. Seems a little small. Right. Seems sort of unsafe. Even though it's pretty spacious and not much smaller than the Volt. Really? Really? I don't know. It feels like it sort of looks like a bug. <laughs> a lot of people have that. A lot of people have that impression of the old lease. So. Very popular automobile, though. Yeah. And would you lease again? Would you buy again? Are you long, like, from your beginning of your car buying life? Right. Are you a leaser? No. I've always bought my cars. This is the first lease I've owned or and that I've leased first car. Seems like a cheaper option. Okay. Less expensive monthly, but maybe not. But I was overhead on my um, Ford Escape. And so by getting the electric vehicle and leasing it kind of wiped me clean. Okay. It was a wash. It was a wash. So, so maybe Chevy Bolt 
maybe I3. I see you in an I3. I see you as an I3 gal tooling about, as it were. If you were to buy the I3, would you buy the I3 with the extender or straight electric? I think I would do the extender. I know. It's going to disappoint a lot of people in the nation. Really? I just feel like for a longer trip, it would... It wouldn't, like, give me anxiety, you know, because I'm such a weekend trip taker. Yeah. Well, that's a good question, right? So in that, I'm assuming that had some, was some of the thought process behind you buying the Volt initially. Yes. How many times in your two years have you used the range extender for long trips as opposed to, oh, shit, I went more than 40 miles? Like, you knew you were going to go out and use the range extender. Uh, in two years, I would say maybe four to six times. Maybe like Vegas, San Diego. That's about it. For a weekend, just for a couple days? Yeah, yeah. So if you were to like have rented a car during that time, I don't know. I feel like that probably those six or seven trips may have been the the bulk of your 80 miles or of your 80 gallons. Oh, absolutely. For sure. For sure. And when you went on those trips, were you able to charge it all or did you just not bother? Some hotels, yes, did have like plugs that I could charge. So I think I did that in San Diego. And in Las Vegas, they had a plug that they did for me at the Cosmo, actually. But nice. it, was not, it wasn't It was um, like a 240. They just plugged it into an outlet in their parking lot. Because you were there for like three a days, just yeah. hammered at the pool. Uh, Tom, we don't need to tell everyone <laughs> that. I don't think they really want to know about my girl, escapades at the cabana. <laughs> a girl has her secrets, <laughs> as it were. Bottom line, Katie Cooper, you're an EV car enthusiast now. I am. Yes. I, I tell all my friends, I don't know what you guys are thinking. You should just get an EV. It's It seems like the smartest option for people driving vehicles. I mean, I just don't understand why people continue to go to the gas station. Seriously. But you were one of those people. Once I know. When you started working here. I know. Who influenced you the most? I was converted to the EV side by one Mel Herbert. Who is... On this lovely show of Talking Tesla. It's true. Well, thanks, Katie Cooper. We appreciate your time, no your problem. insights, your dedication to the cause, as it were. Oh, you're welcome. Well, thanks to Katie and thanks to Tom. You know, for a second, for just a second, I was going to edit out that part where she said, I helped convert her to EVs. But my ego said, no, dude, you need to have that ego stroke. You will leave that in. And I did. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, that's all for the main show. But uh, for those of you that have never heard Eric Bergenson, who was in episode eight, talk about why the uh, autonomous vehicle driving revolution is just around the corner and is going to change everything, we're going to put it back in this episode. If you've heard it, ignore it. If you want to hear it again, great. If you haven't heard it, you must hear it. Eric Bergenson really talking about how autonomous vehicles are going to change the world. My name is Mel Herbert. He was Tom Wolfson. And he was Robert Rosenblum, and we'll talk to you next month, or actually next week, and we'll have a proper show instead of what we are calling the Frankensteinian Sessions. He came out with this pretty radical statement about autonomous vehicles. Vehicle is going to do to the car what the car did to the horse. 
my background is in physics, and I just recently, a couple years ago, got a degree in industrial design. You know, autonomous technology, it's a disruptive technology that's going to have a huge impact on the human race. At the end of the day, cars are only used 4% of the time on average in America. It's between 70-80% of the time cars are used with only one person and a personal bag and nothing else. Um, about, again, 20 to uh, 30% of the time, you might have two or more passengers, maybe some cargo in it. But this is the purchasing dynamic that American consumers are stuck in. Right now, you know, first of all, most people might only choose a new car maybe 10 or 20 times in their entire life right now. So when you choose a car, you choose it, and then you're stuck with it for years. But... Again, it's my belief that that's all going to change. Once you could use vehicles on demand, then what's going to happen is that, you know, in in that world, what's going to happen is that a commuter would choose a new car twice a day instead of twice a decade. So now the consequences of your automotive choice is trivial. You're not stuck with your choice for years anymore. Now you're stuck with your choice for 20 minutes until you get to your destination and you release the car. So what that means is that people are going to be freed up to start using vehicles that more directly reflect how how they actually use their cars. And how they actually use their cars is about 75% driving, just completely solo with nothing but a personal bag. So let's take us through this magical future. I want to try and paint the picture as you painted it so well for us during the meeting. So I get up in the morning. I'm going to go to work. Let's say I'm 20, 30 minutes away, cup of coffee in hand. I'm in this magical future. I don't have a car that's been sitting there all night doing nothing. So I'm going to go to work. So what do I do? I pick up my app. It's an Uber-like app. And I say driverless car, come take me to work, and I'll get a choice of fast, driverless car that can whip through the traffic. Is that how it's going to be? And I'll just pick that choice and it'll be uh, whatever price. We'll get the pricing in a second. But that's my first thing that's going to happen, right? I would take it a step further in that anything that's a routine habit that you do all the time, you won't even have to pick up your phone after the first time you kind of set set the routine. It's going to know every day you go to work at 7.15, you drive by yourself, you have a briefcase and nothing else. So it's it, the car's already going to be out there waiting for you because that's what you do every single day. And the cloud knows that. Same thing at the end of the day. The car is going to be sitting there with your name on it, your reservation. You're going to walk out. It's going to pull up about 10 seconds before you walk out on the curb. You're going to jump in it and go home. Then you're going to get there and it's going to drop you off. Then you release the car. You never have to worry about parking it. You can turn your garage into a gym or a home theater if you want. And then if you're doing something unplanned, for example, Saturday morning you need a car that takes seven people, nine people. Then you just hop on your Uber-like app, and we'll say Uber, there's lots of different ones, but we'll use Uber because it's the best known. You hop on your Uber-like app and say, I need a seven-passenger minivan to the house, and boom, it comes in five minutes. For any kind of unplanned, non-routine trip, then you are going to have to specifically interact with the system to order what you want. And, you know, population density is going to play a big role here. So right now you can already get an Uber in about, you know, 40 seconds notice in any urban environment. But when the price of Uber comes down, you know, gosh, you know, 95%, which is not at all unreasonable – the market for Uber is going to explode even more than it already has. I and mean, when I say Uber, I'm really referring to all ride-sharing companies and future competitors that don't exist yet, obviously. But I'm going to say Uber for shorthand. So what's going to happen is that Uber is going to be servicing uh, suburban and residential markets with the same speed and efficiency as it currently serves urban environments. Now, to be honest, I don't think this is going to work in rural Iowa because there's just not enough population density there to support a fleet dense enough to have that quick of a, a response time. But literally, any even just even a residential market, the, the vehicles will be dense enough that you'll be able to have something in front of your curb in just a few minutes, if not less. 
And it can be whatever you need. If you need to you know, move a piano that day or you want to take seven people to a basketball game or you want to take your son on a fun drive on a curvy road or, or be driven, then that's, that's all going to be available. Getting our head around these concepts would have been really hard even just a few years ago, even before sort of Uber exploded and took off and now so many of us use that service. So a couple of questions, Eric. First of all, what happens during those high commute times in the morning and in the evening? How do you deal with that situation? We still need a lot of cars for that situation. So first of all, about the time of use issue, this whole transformation where we start using vehicles on demand and again, transportation becomes a service rather than a product in America, I call that the mobility cloud. So I'm going to use that term, the mobility cloud from here on out. Now, what's going to happen is that the the mobility cloud is going to be basically like the airline industry is today, where the supply of hardware, the vehicles, is pretty much totally fixed on a short-term basis, but the demand for it is incredibly elastic. Just like, you know, during rush hour, everybody wants a car. At 4 a.m., almost no one wants a car. And what's going to happen is that the pricing structure is going to reflect that just like Uber does today. And of course, no one likes that surge pricing from Uber. But keep in mind, it's, it's a lot because Uber is unnaturally expensive right now because you have to pay for both the vehicle and the driver's time when you use it. Once the overall cost of Uber comes down 90%, obviously, we're not going to grouse so much about, about those prices. We'll get into a little bit why Eric thinks that the price of Uber-like services will drop so much. But the single biggest reason to bring up here is because it's driverless that most of the expense that you're paying for when you have Uber come and drive you to the airport or wherever is not actually the expense of running the car. It's the expense of having a human being in the car. Get rid of the human being, the price plummets. Now, another implication of what goes on here is pretty far-reaching. And that is, right now, there's lots of cars on the road, and we're going to need a lot less cars. That's going to mean, even if we use fossil fuels, a lot less pollution... But it's also going to make the car industry freak out. Right now, we have about a quarter billion cars in America, and they mostly sit around not being used. So all that's going to happen is that all that extra unused stock is going to eventually go away, and it'll take decades for that to happen. So the net number of total vehicles is actually going to go hugely down overall. And obviously, most of them are all going to be used during common times like rush hour. The mobility cloud is actually going to decimate the market for private car sales in America and in every other industrialized nation. And that's because, you know, once people realize they can use Uber cheaper than paying for their own private car, eventually they're going to stop buying, you know, privately buying cars. So just understand that the net number of cars is going to go down in America overall. If we accept this is true, then this has enormous implications for the car industry. We're going to need a fraction of the number of cars that we have today. Therefore, that industry is going to undergo radical change, i.e. it is going to shrink. They have got to be freaking out. I've actually given this, this talk at a couple of, um, I'm not going to mention the names, but at a couple of major established automobile manufacturers. And to be perfectly honest, I kind of got laughed out of the room each time. They cannot accept that this is coming. You're talking to people who have spent their entire careers selling SUVs, to consumers, and they simply cannot imagine that. Cons- and, by, and by the way, you know, buying an SUV rather than a compact car or, or even just a station wagon is a non-rational choice, and we all know it. But that's the business model, and it works. And they and, and, beca- and because consumers have been engaging in this kind of non-rational behavior for so long, because we like SUVs. I mean, again, again, I'm a big car enthusiast. I love sports cars, and I own a ridiculously impractical, silly sports car because it makes me happy. And they've been able to leverage that for so long. They simply cannot imagine a day when that goes away. And by the way, understandably so, if that's been your entire career. But what they're saying is that 
once we start using vehicles through, through the mobility cloud, the consumer's relationship with the car is going to be depersonalized. Nobody, again, like, hey, people love to drive an expensive European car. I do. Who doesn't? But once it's basically a taxi that you're using rather than your own car that's a reflection of yourself, all of those social kind of nuances that incent people to buy big, nice, beautiful cars, they're all going to be weakened. They're not going to be erased, but they're going to be so weakened that all of that's going to go away. And major car manufacturers cannot accept that. My premise was that most people, a car may be fun and interesting, but when that cost comes down, they are going to move to whatever is the cheapest because they're not that into cars. They're not like gearheads like some people that might be listening to this show. Yeah, I would go further and say that actually for most people, it's not fun and interesting. It's literally just an appliance mm-hmm. that they just want to work all the time and never cause them any problems. And if you look at you know, sales rates for, for you know, Honda Accords or Toyota Camrys versus interesting cars, well, that tells you the numbers right there. Like that's consumers vote with their dollars and that tells you what the ratios are. To most people, a car is just an appliance. Eric's now going to take us through some of these costs. What is it really going to cost How are these costs going to come down? Why are they going to come down in this mobility cloud? You know, right now, Uber costs about $1.80 a mile to use, which is quite expensive, again, because you have to rent both the driver's time and the vehicle when you use Uber. If you imagine an autonomous vehicle being used in the manner of a taxi cab and you make reasonable assumptions about, you know, the infrastructure required to support them, you know, how much they would cost, you know, how many years can you use them, you basically like model it on a taxi cab. Turns out you can do an analysis that shows how expensive Uber and its competitors would be based on how expensive their fleet of autonomous vehicles were. And what I found out is that, like I said, with their human drivers, it's about $1.80 a mile, which is quite expensive. Turns out that's actually equivalent to buying autonomous vehicles that cost $412,000. That's a lot of money, obviously. The technology is still more expensive than that, but it's still in the laboratory and it hasn't been mass produced yet. So it's, it's going to keep getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Now, Uber is about three times as expensive as private car ownership in America. Private car ownership costs about 66 cents a mile to drive, which it turns out, that's, by my calculations, about equivalent to Uber purchasing autonomous vehicles that cost about $160,000. It won't be cost-effective to start doing this until the vehicles get below $412,000, but anytime they're purchasing vehicles cheaper than that, down to $160,000, when they get to $160,000, their service will have dropped by two-thirds in price. So basically what's happening there is that Uber is just getting cheaper, therefore their market is exploding even more than it already has exploded. But again, Uber's market is growing, but otherwise it's business as usual. Things don't really start getting interesting until they can start buying autonomous vehicles that cost less than $160,000. Because at that point, now they're starting to provide service cheaper than it costs to privately operate cars in America. For example, if they could ever buy, ever buy a fleet of autonomous vehicles that cost $75,000, then they'd be able to offer transportation for about two-thirds the price of privately owning vehicles in America. If they could ever buy a $25,000 fleet vehicle, and I know that sounds really cheap right now to, to 2015 years who know anything about how, how expensive autonomous technology is, but stay with me on that one. If they could ever buy a $25,000 fleet vehicle, that would allow them to offer transportation for one-third the price of privately owning cars. If you offer consumers transportation for you know, one-third the price of what it costs to privately use a car, and by the way, it's not just as convenient, it's more convenient because now when you get to work and maybe you work downtown, you don't have to park the car. You don't have to pay for parking. You don't have to spend time looking for it. You just get out of the vehicle and release it and it picks up another, another passenger. The economics of this are impossible to ignore. In similar choice angle, we could, we could debate and talk about that all day long. But at the end of the day, when the price differential is that extreme, consumers are going to choose it eventually every time. But then what about specifically electric cars? 
Why electric autonomous vehicles versus internal combustion engines? What additional benefit do you have from having an electric car? So first of all, there are three major disincentives to consumers using electric cars. The first one is the higher purchase price. The second one is the recharging time. And the third one is the limited range of the vehicles. And what's going to happen is that the mobility cloud is going to negate all of those disadvantages. And here's how that's going to happen. So when it comes to purchase price, that's going to become irrelevant because now these vehicles, they're service vehicles. They're like taxi cabs. The purchase price is going to be amortized over tens of thousands of users over the vehicle's life. So a difference in purchase price, that's going to end up being very trivial and not very important. And because the vehicles are doing 70,000 miles a year instead of 13,500 miles a year, now what's important is running costs. And the running costs for an electric vehicle are so much less than they are for a gas vehicle that the electric vehicles are going to be economically superior to the gas vehicles, I mean, almost from day one, really just almost right away. Now, in terms of the other disincentives, the range and the charging time, remember, we're talking about on-demand service vehicles here. So the consumer isn't responsible for any of that. All that is handled by the fleet owner and the fleet manager. So the consumer doesn't even have any exposure to those concerns anymore. As long as you're traveling you know, a distance less than the total range of the vehicle. And once you go outside that, there's, that's actually a whole other conversation that we can have. But um, again, in most driving is you know, commuting, which is not very long in general and well within the range of current battery technology. So Eric's an industrial design guy and a bit of a visionary. So Eric, paint us a picture then of what these sort of daily commuter cars could look like if you take away all those constraints. If we know that 70% of the time it's just me and a cup of coffee, how would you design the car in this autonomous future? It's something that I call a cabin commuter. It's a small, single-occupant, enclosed vehicle. You might think it's like a motorcycle, but it's not. It's, you know, think of it instead as half of a smart car, the passenger half, because, of course, there's, there's no steering wheel. It'll be very narrow, because in the beginning, when the world is still full of full-size cars, you want to be able to split lanes like a motorcycle and, and still get home 40% faster. So, again, I think what you're going to have is you're going to see appear a new automotive architecture that holds only a single person. It's going to have the footprint about of a motorcycle, but it's going to be taller. You're going to sit in it in a seat that's exactly like a car seat. The user experience is going to be as car-like as possible. There's not going to be any motorcycle controls or interfaces anywhere. And if the builders are smart, they're not going to use the word motorcycle anywhere in the marketing of this product either, because you want to appeal to car consumers, not motorcycle operators. So, again, I call these cabin commuters. And because 75% of all driving is done with just one person, I think if you let this run for a couple decades, in 25 years, 75% of all the vehicles on the road are going to be small, single-occupant vehicles that only hold a single person and a personal bag. 